All right, church. Well, good morning. And if, uh, if my voice sounds a little bit different, it's because I lost my voice yesterday. Isn't that weird? <laughs> You're like, I know, I wasn't expecting this. Me either. Okay. Uh, I went to bed, or I was gone for July 4th and flew in and taught at the weekender. And uh, at the end of the weekender session, I step outside to talk to some people. And I'm like, I can't talk. It was, this was weird. And I thought, well, I'll go to sleep and I'll wake up and I'll feel better. And I felt worse yesterday. My voice, what I mean. And so I barely got through last night, but then Many people prayed for me, woke up, feel pretty good today. So if you think this sounds bad, okay, you should have seen what I sounded like last night. Most of you are going to be trying to clear your throat the whole morning. <coughs> you right? For me. Kyle, it's time to clear your throat. Uh, guys, a couple updates, and then we're going to start 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'll meet you there in a few minutes. Uh, two just updates. Guys, we're not trying to talk about the building all the time, or, but because we, here's why. Because the building is just a, a means to an end. But there are moments and milestones we want to celebrate. And if you go to our property, which is on Patterson, we got about 13 acres there. Some of you have heard us talk about this. Uh, we've already fenced about three of it and, and cleaned it up, and we're excited about that area. And then, Lord willing, they've told us this week they're going to start moving dirt and getting uh, machinery on that property. So we are really, yeah, yeah, really excited about that. Um, we're just, and guys, we're excited about our neighborhood. If you don't know this, we want you to know this. We want you to know where we're moving. You can Google Industry Hill. That's the neighborhood we're moving into. In Forbes magazine last year said it's one of the neighborhoods to watch, not in North Carolina, but in the nation. So again, I know it's an accident. We don't know how <laughs> We're the Forrest Gump of churches. So I went to, you know, I went to the White House again and I ate with the president again. That's how we feel. So we're really, really humbled guys by that. And uh, thank you again for your generosity. We're gonna continue to give you updates. Maybe we'll put a hard hat on and put a shovel in and you smile, we'll see. Um, shoot some videos. We're, we're, anyway, we're gonna have a whole plan to, to tell you guys more about the building as it, as it starts. We're still hoping for it to be done in 14 months and to be in there um, September of 2023. So that's the first thing. Second, behind me, a couple pictures from The Weekender. <clears throat> uh, the Weekender was this last weekend. I can't believe this, guys. I mean, this is really amazing. We do The Weekender nine times a year and every time people respond to our weekend or the way people respond to Hamilton tickets. I mean, they, they, they just sell out, you know, it's just, so we had 80 people and guys, it just, I can't tell you what it does. It encourages our, our, our students. It encourages our volunteers. It helps our families. It strengthens all of our ministries. So listen, here, here's, cause I met a lot of new people, you know, you medical students who are coming in and you residents and you fellows and you grad students and I don't know, you other families who are moving in here. And if you visited us, let me just encourage you to go to the weekend or the weekender is how you move from saying, I go to that church to I'm a part of that church, okay? And, and some of you may not want that. Some of you show up, you're wearing a baseball hat, you're wearing sunglasses, you, you know, you come late, you leave early, fair enough, okay? We can't do anything about that. But if you, if you wanna go from anonymous to actively involved, let me encourage you to come to this next weekend or before it gets too busy, because uh, August 12th and 13th is gonna be our last one of the summer. Then we're gonna hit the fall. We've got a lot of exciting things we're gonna be doing, and we would love to take as many people as possible with us. So let me just pray for us real quick. I'm also gonna just pray for my voice, as weird as that is, to pray with you guys for my voice. <clears throat> and then uh, we're gonna dive into 2 Samuel 6. Lord, I thank you. I love this church. I love the people here. I love the opportunity each week to just look at your word together, to take it seriously, but not take ourselves seriously, Lord. To laugh at ourselves, but to take your word very seriously. Lord, we thank you for just what you continue to do. We are unbelievably humbled. Um, at the opportunity to have a home and hub downtown. Uh, we pray that it would be an ark and a lighthouse for our city. And we, and we just thank you. Every time a weekender opens up, dozens and dozens and dozens of people say, I wanna be all in. I wanna be all in with my time, talent, treasure. And it just, it deepens and develops every area of our church, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. This is it's all grace. We receive it from you. We ask that you would just um, <clears throat> open our minds and our hearts as we look at your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel 6, you can type to, turn to that. We're in a series on King David. 
Uh, if you don't know who David is, that's okay. He's like one of the most famous people in the Bible. It's like Jesus would be number one, and well, David's probably close second in the sense of he mentioned over a thousand times, 66 different chapters. I told you guys all that. We, we've spent <clears throat> we spent the last few weeks looking at him, and so we looked at like. Remember that story of he's, in, he's a shepherd boy and he's overlooked by his family, and, but God sees who no one else sees. And God remembers who everyone else forgets. That, that was week one. And then week two was, man, David, the warrior, the man who fights the giants in his life by faith. And we said, we need to do the same thing. <clears throat> and then week three, and Pastor Nate did a great job last week talking about friendship, right? We actually said one of the, it's just, we know this, you know this for your kids, that friends determine the quality and direction of your life. And they say one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did that we don't consider a miracle is be over 30 and have 12 close guy friends, okay? <laughs> he, Jesus did that. So um, today we're gonna look at, at David the worshiper. So that's 2 Samuel 6. Now, a couple of things I need to say about this as we turn there, 2 Samuel 6. Um, the first thing I need to say is that um, this is actually the first thing before we're told about David the king, and David this great man, and David the warrior, and David the father, and David the king, all that. The first time David is mentioned is in 1 Samuel 13. You don't need to turn there now, but we, we started our series in 1 Samuel 16. But in 1 Samuel 13, God, for the first time, talks about David. We don't get his name yet, but we get a description. We're told, hey, there's this guy, and he's going to be a man after my own heart. Now, could you think, I can't think of a better thing to be said about your life than that. I mean, think about it at your funeral, <clears throat> which is a helpful thing to think about every once in a while. Like, okay, so you're gonna die, and well, think about this. Who would, who would speak at your funeral, and what would they say? It's a really kind of emotional, spiritual exercise to do that. Well, just imagine that, you know, what kind of person would you need to be for them to say, you know what, I loved mom. There's a lot of great things about mom, but what was awesome about mom is that she was a woman after God's own heart. You know, dad, <clears throat> dad was a great guy, and there's so many great things about him, and I love that he played with me, and I love that, you know, whatever. But what defined his life was he was a man after God's own heart. It's like, what kind of person? Are you that? <clears throat> Have you ever met anybody like that? It's like, I, I care about God and I care about what God cares about. And so what we're gonna see today, if you'll turn me to 2 Samuel chapter six, <clears throat> we're gonna see David after he just became king and it's publicly um, kind of, he's, he's made publicly king in 2 Samuel 5 in front of everyone. In fact, there's a lot of things, unfortunately, that we've had to skip over in the series. Nate preached on 1 Samuel 20, which is David and you know, his friendship with Jonathan. We're skipping like 10 or 15 chapters, which we don't normally do, but this series isn't just going through 1 and 2 Samuel. It's hitting the milestones and the moments and the mountaintops in the life of David. And so what we missed is about a 20-year battle between Saul and David, and Saul tries to kill David many times, and David has two opportunities to kill Saul, <clears throat> but he doesn't. And then we also have three funerals that happened since uh, what Nate taught about uh, in 1 Samuel uh, 20. We've had three funerals. Samuel dies, and the whole book's named after him. And then Jonathan and Saul die at the end of 1 Samuel. And David finds out about the death of Jonathan and Saul at the beginning of 2 Samuel. So all of that's happened. Now David's king. And let's see the first thing David does as king. Look here. It says, David again <coughs> gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So this is why we called him David the worshiper. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. And we see that the very first thing that David does when he becomes king is he desires to bring the ark, which we'll talk about, that represented the power and the presence of God. He wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. Here's what he wanted to do. He said, guys, we forgot about God. We can't forget about God. 
and I wanna make worship central in my family, and I wanna make worship central in my nation, and I wanna make worship central among the people of God, okay? So we're gonna see he's gonna make a mistake. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But what he gets right is worship. And I wanna talk about worship just for a minute, because worship's one of those words like Christians can say, like I worship, or I listen to worship music. It's like, well, what does it mean to worship? Well, (laughs) it's a long answer, but the short answer, worship is me responding with all that I am to all that God has said. That's probably the best definition of like, if you had to simplify it all, like what is worship? It's me responding and what, how, why did I respond? I might raise my hands. I might serve somebody else. I might give generously. I might tell someone else about Christ because I'm so overwhelmed. I might confess a sin to somebody that I need help with. It's like, who knows? It's me responding with all that I am to all that God has said. That's why the Bible says, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That's like, okay, all your life is worship. And you can personally worship the Lord. You can read your Bible, you can pray. What we're seeing here is he's talking about corporate worship, worshiping together, responding together. So <clears throat> a couple things I wanna say. First, he has a good desire to worship. Um, and, but he gets something wrong. I don't wanna ruin the whole story. I'm gonna read it in a minute. But basically what's gonna happen is he's going to be very, very excited about bringing the ark back, but he's gonna not have carefully read God's word and if you don't know this story, you're gonna be really surprised. And if you know this story, I hope you won't be desensitized to it and you'll, you, you can still be shocked in a good way by it. This is the story where they're bringing back the ark and Uzzah or Yuzah, you can say his name different ways, touches the ark and is killed immediately. And he falls dead and David's like, what's going on? And he puts the ark in a Philistine's home for a while. It's because David, David didn't understand that you need passion and you need truth in worship. This is the big idea. We need to worship according to the word. We need passion and truth. We need gravity and gladness. The temptation in the Christian life is to just do one of those two things, right? Who, who's ever been, you don't have to raise your hand, but who's ever been just, you've been to the passionate church with no truth or very little truth. We call that lots of heat, little bit of light. And what happens with that? It's like, well, that's, that's camp Christianity. That's retreat Christianity. That's recommit Christianity. That's my faith is my feelings, Christianity. That's I'm up and down and I'm always recommitting my life and, you know, and there's a lot of emotion. And it's very seasonal. So we're not, we like passion. I'm all about passion. We're an emotional creature, but it needs to be passion and truth. Now, what if, what if you're just truth? You ever been to that church? The dead orthodoxy church? The, the church that knows all the right answers? The church, it's high on intellectualism and religiosity but there's no heart. I mean, but what's powerful is when you have a mind for truth and a heart for God and those two things come together. And we're gonna see that David has passion. He really wants to to honor the Lord, but he's not doing it according to truth. The second thing is we need gravity and gladness, right? Now, most people, they just want gladness. I mean, most Americans, especially American men, it's like, get an American male to feel negative emotion. He won't wanna do that for about two seconds. He doesn't know what to do with negative emotion. I mean, most guys don't. It's, it's sophisticated. You have to think about it. We just want to feel happy emotions. And so, listen, we're this church full of gladness and joy and celebration, and we'll sing joyful songs. But we also, we need to be aware, like, in a church our size, or really a church any size, there's always that are people that are hurting. You know, every week, I'm probably, I'm guessing, someone found out they got cancer, or someone they love got cancer, or they can't have kids, or their boyfriend broke their heart or their marriage is on the rocks or their kids this or their finances that. And so, you know, the question we have to ask is, well, what can sad Christians sing? 
Is there something that is sad? Some of you in here are sad today. It's like, well, what could you sing? Because if you only do gladness, it's what's, here's a big phrase, it's what's called an over-realized eschatology. You're like, what does that mean? You're acting like heaven's here. It's not. You're acting like you're in heaven right now. You're acting like you're, at, you're too triumphant. And that's not Christianity. We're ultimately triumphant. But there's a lot of trials before we get to the triumph in the end. We all have to die before we get to heaven. It's like, man, okay, so, so there's this weightiness. And so that's the whole message. I want you to unpack. I'm going to unpack it now. But that's it. David wants to worship. He makes a mistake. He doesn't worship according to the word. So he has passion and no truth. He has gladness and no gravity, but by the end, he gets all of it. Okay, let's look at this. I'm gonna read you the whole nine verses to set the story. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, <clears throat> 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him in Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And this is an important detail. If you underline your Bible, you may want to underline this. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Okay, we'll look into that. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, and you may go, who's Ahio? He's the brother of Ohio. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> terrible, terrible joke. <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> the, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart. With, <laughs> uh, we take God's word seriously, we don't take ourselves seriously. Okay, the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Okay, so look, he's, you can see this, he has passion. We're gonna see he's missing some truth. He's celebrating, but he's not very serious. And by the way, serious, the literal definition of serious is I ha I'm very careful. I carefully consider things. That's what it means to be serious. That's the definition of serious. David does not carefully consider what he's doing. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. The oxen stumbled, it's about to, the ark's about to fall and hit the ground. So Uzzah steadies it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down and there, struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because of the ark of God. Because, sorry, beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Well, let's first talk positively and then negatively about what David did. I mean, positively, he's passionate about the Lord, right? I mean, what are you passionate about? I mean, you don't have to say it out loud, but like, honestly, like, what are you excited about? Most of us, the thing that we're most passionate, so let me say it this way. Whatever you're most passionate about is the exact same thing that you worship. So it's easy for us to say, I worship the Lord. I love the Lord with all my heart. I worship the Lord. Well, you know, it's probably part of your life, but what are you really, really, really passionate about? David was really passionate about worshiping the Lord. Some of you, you worship the Lord, but you're, what you really worship, what you're really passionate about is your hobbies, right? I mean, some of you, you're really passionate about sports. I mean, some of you, it's embarrassing if you had to admit it because passion's kind of a weird thing because you're like, I don't know why I care so much. It's like, for some of you, it's Netflix shows and series that you get into. For some of you, it's housing projects. For some of you, a little more discretionary income and discretionary time, it's your next vacation. 
sometimes it's something that you don't even want to admit. You're like, dude, I hate it, but where my heart really indulges? Like, that's, that's what you worship, what you indulge in. It's like, well, when no one's home or when it's late or when I travel or when I get to choose what I get to choose, this is what I do, and it's not normally worship the Lord. What would it look like in your life if you were most passionate about God? I don't know if you've ever even had a season of your life. I don't know if you've ever known someone in your life. You're just like, they're just, that's just what they are most, they're most passionate about that. The second thing he does right, because we'll talk about what he does wrong, but he wants to worship God and he wants to worship God with other people. Do you see that? He gathers 30,000 people. I mean, if you've ever heard of the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, that's like gathering three of the Summit Churches. <laughs> and just saying, let's all go worship together. And, and what he understands is worship, yes, worship is three things. Worship is everything you do in your life. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do. Worship is personal. Lord, I love you, I'm praying to you, I'm seeking you. And then worship is corporate. Worship is what we do together. And there's something special. This is why we say all the time, we don't create downloadable experiences. And, and here's how we know this. We saw this during COVID, right? During COVID, and I don't wanna talk about COVID, but just for one minute, I will. Um, <clears throat> we were shut down for 15 weeks, which is you know very little amount of time. Still a lot for us, but just like, in about eight weeks in, Dave and I, Pastor Dave and I are trying to figure out how to come back, okay? It's like, so we get back as soon as we can. But it took us about 15 weeks. We started with a Thursday night service. And some of you came based on how afraid you were, and that's fine. But you, you came at different times, and that's fine. But the same thing happened every time people would come. Every time people would come, almost everybody who came cried. And, and not during my message. Well, sometimes during my message. Lord, what, is it almost over? <laughs> um, but no, they, they, uh, but they cried during the worship songs. And they all said the same thing afterwards. It's like, well, you know, I forgot. It's like, well, it's only been three months, but I forgot too. Like there's something, and we need to see each other worship. I know it's kind of weird. Like certain churches will hit all the lights and everybody just closes their eyes and worship and fair enough. But actually in worship, you should at one, at one level kind of look around every once in a while. I know it's a little awkward, but here's the whole point of it. I need to see like the person who's going through something. It's like, you just lost your husband. It's actually good for my soul to see you worshiping. And you're a single mom and yeah, I know what you're going through right now and you're trusting the Lord or... Sometimes it's like, I just need to see, it's like some of us, it's like some of the teenagers, they're loving the Lord and they're singing to the Lord. And it's like some of the older people in the room, including myself, are like, I needed to see that because sometimes I can be discouraged. So we need each other, right? I mean, it's powerful. Think about it. When we sing together, we sing the same words at the same time to the same God. It's just this powerful unifying experience. Okay, so that's what David does well. Now, let's look what happens. If you look at me at verse... Three, it says this, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart. So we have to talk about a couple things. What is the ark? Okay, well, this is not Noah's ark, okay? <laughs> if you thought that, I mean, that would be very hard to carry that, okay? This was not Noah's ark. Um, but let's take a moment and just do a little bit of archaeology. Okay, that was another terrible joke. I'm seeing if you're paying attention. Um, <clears throat> you do a little archaeology. So the ark was two feet high by two feet wide by roughly five feet long. It could hold your golf clubs. Think of it that way, okay? Um, and, but it was gold-plated, and um, it was symbolic. It represented the power and the presence of God. If you didn't know this, inside the ark was three things. There was the jar of manna that represented uh, God's provision. There was Aaron's staff that represented God's power where the miracles were done. And there was God's, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, God's priorities or God's word. And so it was very symbolic. And what's interesting is sometimes we have what, what uh, C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We look back at these old generations and our ancestors and we're like, oh, weren't they so foolish? 
they had all these like symbols they thought were so important. It's like, you think that just our ancestors thought that symbols were important. It's like, well, what is the logo on your t-shirt? It's a symbol that you think is fairly important and it usually represents status or experience. Or how about, I mean, we're in a massive battle in our nation among symbols. Is it the MAGA hat? Don't think that's not a symbol. Is it the Black Lives Fist? Is it the transgender flag? I'm convinced the transgender flag is the modern day Passover. What, is it, what happened to Passover? You put something over your doorpost so that the spirit of the age would pass over you and would not judge you. And so symbols are unbelievable. We know the Nazi swastika is a powerful symbol. Symbols can be for good or bad. They're, the cross is the symbol for Christianity. And so you have this ark and it symbolizes God and his presence and his power. And it was forgotten for 75 years. It's hard to believe, you know? But have you ever forgot about God for a season of your life? Some of you call that college, right? Other people call that high school. Sometimes people call that being single. Strangely, sometimes it's getting married and having kids. People forget about God. They move from the Christ-centered home to the child-centered home. Johnny needs to take four naps a day. Johnny can't make it to any of the church services, even though you have four. That go across two days. <laughs> I'm not bitter about any of this. <laughs> you know, Johnny can't make it to community group because it just doesn't work for Johnny because Johnny needs to go to bed at 6.30. It's like, okay, well, I, I, you may not know this. It looks like you have a child-centered home instead of a Christ-centered home. We're not saying it's easy to figure all this out. And so <clears throat> they had forgotten the ark. David says, I'm gonna bring it back. But he does, and this is, I think, the key point here. <laughs> David wants to do the right thing, but he goes about it the wrong way. What do I mean by that? He wants to do the right thing. What is the right thing? I wanna bring worship back to the center of the life of my people. But he goes about it the wrong way. What's that? That's where he puts it on a cart instead of putting it on the shoulders of a group of men. God said in Numbers 4.4, it needs to go with this group of men and it needs to be carried the certain way. And so how many of us, I mean, think about that for you know an hour if you have time today. It's like, what are, you, what are you saying? Okay, God, I wanna do the right thing. And I think if you're a Christian, that's what you want. You're like, I wanna do the right thing. But then if you're honest, you're, you're more like David. You're, you're not looking at God's word closely enough to follow it to do the right thing and get there the right way. In other words, often we want the right end, but we don't wanna use the right means. I mean, it's so easy. Like if we took an exam right now, everyone would be like, I, I would, yes, I wanna have godly kids. It's like, okay, great, you want the right thing because I got a verse for you. Malachi chapter two says, what does God want from a marriage? Godly offspring, you've got to, that's exactly the right goal. But why are you spending so much time with athletics and academics and amusement? and activities with your kids? And why have you never prioritized getting them connected to the student ministry? And why do you not understand authority? You're not your kid's friend. And why, if, you've got, why if you have young kids, why are you putting a screen in front of them all the time just so you can get a break? Because when you put a screen in front of them, you say, here, I won't have to sacrifice, but in the future you'll suffer for doing this. But right now I don't have to sacrifice. It's hard, I've got three kids, I know this is hard. <laughs> I'm speaking to myself too on all this. Um, how many of us say we, we, want, we want great 
godly relationships. I mean, there's lots of verses for that. And then, but then we don't want to do it. It's like, well, the Bible also commands us to one another, one another, to forgive one another, to love one another. How about this, to practice hospitality? That's a biblical command. Or to have margin in your life. You know, how many of us, we want whatever you call it, financial freedom, financial stability, but you don't actually do what God's word says. You overspend, you undersave, you barely give. And then people wonder, why am I not where I need to be? God gives, these are the, I've got the right desires. This is where I want to go, but I don't know God's word well enough. Now we got to ask this, why? It's like, you know, you think about this, you don't have the answer. So we got to kind of, you know, a good Bible reader is a confused Bible reader. So you might go like, okay, why didn't they put, why didn't they just put the cart on the shoulders and just go? It's, a, it's an 11 mile journey. It's long, but come on. Well, there's, 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 there's three reasons, I think, as I thought about it. Reason number one. Um, Reason number one is they maybe they forgot what God had said. Have you ever forgot what God said? You probably did. We all do. It's like, well, God said a lot of things. So it's hard for me to remember them all. Well, fair enough. But it's like we forget certain things that God has said. And one of the reasons, by the way, that we're, and you might forget because, I don't know, because you're so informed by culture instead of scripture. You may forget because, I don't know, for a season in your life, you start hanging out with a certain group of people. But one of the reasons that we're going, like, so we do this thing called gospel projects with our kids' ministry. And even if you don't have kids, what you know about this? We're like, we take the kids through the Bible. Like every three to five years, they're getting through the whole Bible. So by the time they're in fifth grade, they've gotten through the Bible like at least twice. And it's really neat. And well, why are we doing that? It's like, we want to just, we want to give them as much Bible as possible so that even if they rebel at some point, you know, think about some girl, she rebels and she's in her second year of college and she's like struggling and she wakes up and her conscience is condemning her at three in the morning. And she starts thinking about the story of the prodigal son. It's like, well, you forgot. It's okay. Or she starts, I'm Jonah. So you are Jonah. It's time to come back. Or I remember my parents told me, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or my mom and dad always told me that if I would confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, I would be saved. It's like, or if I confess my sins, God will forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's like, we're just trying to give people as much lovingly age appropriately as much scripture so that they may forget for a season, but we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would remind them. The second thing is they, they, they may have just not known. Well, here's the scary thing. Ignorance is not an excuse, right? Could you imagine if not knowing the Bible gave you an excuse? It's like, then I'm not reading it, right? <laughs> then I don't want to know. Don't, don't tell me what it says. It's like, no, actually, unfortunately, it seems according to this passage, even if you don't know, you're still responsible. This is why we say, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. This is why we do what we do here. I mean, it's, if you think about it, what we do is kind of strange. Everybody comes in here, we sing a few songs. You guys sit, I mean, fairly quietly for 45 to 50 minutes every week. And one of us is up here talking about a 2,000 year old book for 40 to 45 minutes. And we normally just start at the beginning of that book and go to the end of that book. Then what we do is we call that expositional preaching. And the reason that we do that, so I've been doing this here for six years, and I, I need to count it up, but I think we've gone through somewhere between 15 to 20 books. Now we haven't made it all the way through every book. We got to like chapter 20 in Exodus. But the whole point is, uh, if you came around for a long time, you're, we're gonna deal with a lot of different issues, even hard issues. I mean, who wants to preach on, could you imagine if this happened yesterday? Who wants to preach on Uzzah and the Ark? If, if the New York Times wrote this story, right? Nice guy, trying to do his best, mean God kills him. That would be, that would be the title for this story. It's like, who wants to talk about this stuff? Well, we talk about it because it comes up in scripture. But here's the third reason. And I think this is often the reason that we don't obey God. They knew what God had said, but thought that they knew better. 
right? Have you ever thought that before? They're probably sitting around going, okay, look, I know it says on a, you know, that guys are supposed to carry this, but God probably didn't know there was gonna be carts. <laughs> God probably didn't know there would be a cart and that God probably never thought that we could do this with a cart, so he just probably doesn't care, right? It, it kinda, have you ever heard this argument? Somebody reads scripture. Maybe it's you, maybe it's your friend. They read scripture, they find something they don't like, normally having to do with sexuality or their narcissism. And then they say something like this, this is so primitive. This is so archaic, right? Who carries an ark on their shoulders when you have a cart? There's God probably, or they say something like this, God probably had no real purpose for this, right? You hear these kind of debates. People will say, so, you know, the Apostle Paul condemns all sex outside of heterosexual marriage, okay? He condemns all sex outside of heterosexual marriage in Romans chapter one, among also homosexuality. And there are people who read that passage and they literally, they say things like this, well, you know what? The apostle Paul did not know about same-sex attraction. Do you, that was, basically the argument is, hey, Paul's uninformed. And if Paul knew what we knew, then he would do what we do. And where the Bible disagrees with me, I'm right. And the Bible's wrong, and I need, to, I need to drag the Bible kicking and screaming into the 21st century. That's kind of the, often the mentality. And so David, he, he wants to do the right thing, but he goes about it the wrong way. Is it because he didn't know, because he forgot, because he thought he knew better? That we don't know. But I, you need to see what happens. Um, look at verse six. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God, and David was angry. Don't you love the honesty of the Bible? David gets angry at God and says, God, I'm done with you for three months, and takes the ark and puts it with the Philistines. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So th this passage of offends us, right? And uh, it offends us so much that there are some commentators who they try to say, here's what happened here. Um, Uzzah, he is, uh, he's a godly man. And when the ark stumbles and about to fall into the ground, he grabs it, but he's so godly and he fears the Lord so much that he has a little mini heart attack when he touches the ark and that's how he dies. That's actually one of the interpretations of this passage. Why? Because, well, People don't like the supernatural. And people don't like the justice of God. Now, listen, what happened with Uzzah is unique. God doesn't always, it says in the text, he broke out. We don't have a lot of examples of this in scripture. Like there's this guy named Achan in Joshua 7 that God makes an example of. But what did he do? Well, he coveted a few things and then he lied and hid some things in his life. It's like, well, who here would be alive if God killed everyone who did that? Or how about Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira were, I, I think, a good Christian couple who they were a little bit hip, hypocrites and they wanted to appear to other people more generous than they were. Anyone ever struggle with that? God killed everybody who was a hypocrite and wanted to look more generous than they were. We wouldn't be having a church service right now. <laughs> right? And so, so there's, God will often make, or not often, he will occasionally make an example of somebody for it to be a lesson for us. And I believe the lesson of Uzzah, there's a couple of lessons with Uzzah, but the lesson with Uzzah is do not take grace for granted. I think so often we assume and presume upon God's grace in our life. 
And we presume and assume upon God's mercy in our life because he's just been so merciful to us. It's like justice is when God gives us what we deserve. So when Uzzah touches the ark and because he's sinful and the ark is, God is holy, and he immediately dies, that is justice. All, all the times that God doesn't give us what we deserve, that's grace and that's mercy. That's why if you're ever talking to someone, they're like, well, I just want God to just give me what I deserve. Whenever they say that, I'm like, <laughs> in case lightning strikes, I'm gonna move over. <laughs> I'm gonna move two or three steps over to the other side. And, and, and really, it's, at the end of the day, it's God's holiness and our sinfulness that we need to think about. You, you'll hear this again. If, you know, if, you're, if you read the Bible, you have to put together God's holiness and your sinfulness. Here's what holiness means. God is separate. That's what the, literally the word holiness means cut off. God is separate and set apart from us. That's why the ark was in the holy of holies, behind a veil, separated from everybody and everything else in the temple. It's this picture of God is separate. He's, he's not a bigger, smarter, taller version of you. That's often how we kind of think of God in our minds. God kind of thinks like me, but better. You know, he kind of acts like me, but just better. It's like, no, 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 he's a completely different version of you or different than you. But then we have to think about our own sinfulness, which we don't want to think about, right? You don't want to admit that you're a sinner. Like you don't sin, you're, you're sick. And you don't need theology, you need therapy, right? And you don't sin, you, I don't know, you have laps of judgment, indiscretions and mistakes. And, and what we see in this story is that we're actually reminded, so here's, here's what Uzzah thinks. Uzzah thinks in his mind, I don't want to let the ark fall because then the ark will hit mud. And mud will make the ark unholy and dirty. Actually, no, no, no. The ground never rebelled against God. If the ark would fall on the ground, the ark would be fine and the ground would be fine. It's that sinful, rebellious humanity came in contact with the holiness of God. And that's, and that's why Uzzah immediately died. And so David, he, we said this, David gets angry. I want you to see what happens here. Look, look at verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of the coolest name in the Bible, Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, who we know by the last name Gittite, or the, the designation Gittite, that he was a Philistine. Um, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So here's what happens. David, we don't know all that's going on in David's heart. We're trying to read the story. But David is a mixture of angry and afraid, right? And that's a hard, those are hard to sometimes, sometimes you're angry because you're afraid. And it's hard, it's hard to tell that all the time, but he's angry and afraid. And so for three months, that's a long time, that's 90 days. For three months, he decides, God, I need a break or whatever, or, or maybe I'm done with you, or, or I'm gonna give you, if you're gonna kill people, then here, go live with you. Here, you want a present, Obed-Edom? <laughs> you should touch the ark, you know, kind of. Um, <clears throat> we don't know, but what he sees is he sees God, he sees God bless Obed-Edom. And the same God that judges is the same God that blesses. And oftentimes we just, we just want the God that blesses, but we don't want the God that judges. We want a God, I don't know, made in our own image. We, we want a domesticated form of God. We wanna say, well, I really like love and I really like justice and I really like, for, or, I, not justice, I love mercy and I love forgiveness, but I don't really love justice and I don't love wrath and I don't love anger. But here's the thing, if you look at the cross of Christ, what you see is blessing and judgment. At the cross of Christ, God judges Jesus Christ in our place so he can bless everybody who would ever believe in him. So David gets it, 
But he, he has this realization that I want us to realize. He realizes he goes from celebration to also seriousness. Or we might even say he goes from celebration to understanding sacrifice. And David begins to understand something that I, I, I want us to understand. I hope we do understand. It's that the only way we relate to God is through sacrifice. Uh, watch, I'll show you this. Look at verse 12. Here's what it says. And it was told to King David, or, or uh, it was told King David, <clears throat> the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, it was an 11-mile journey. Some people think they sacrificed every six steps. I mean, that would be a lot. Uh, or they may have just sacrificed the first six steps. But the whole point is we need to understand, David understands sacrifice. Now, we use sacrifice today in kind of like a metaphorical way, right? Like you might say something like, I'm sacrificing right now. I'm not eating a lot of carbs. <laughs> and those of us who love carbs, we know that is a sacrifice, okay? <laughs> but why would you do that? You might say, I'm not eating a lot of carbs because I want to be healthier or I want to lose weight or I want to have a beach body, whatever it is. But you're, what's, what, the way we use sacrifice, which is good, is we use sacrifice, here's what we mean. I give up something I love for something I love even more. And that's the definition of maturity and that's the discovering of the future and all that's good. But for a moment here, I wanna talk about like real sacrifice. Like that's what, that's what we have in this passage is real sacrifice. And sacrifice, you, I don't think you can understand Christianity if you don't understand sacrifice. In fact, I'm convinced you can. <clears throat> because sacrifice, God is the first to sacrifice. Let's talk about that. So in Genesis chapter three, who, I mean, that's a deep thought. Who's the first person who ever sacrifices? God. Because Adam and Eve, they sin, they rebel. They try to cover themselves, remember, with you know, fig leaves. And God says, this isn't gonna work. And he kills an animal. This is the end of Genesis chapter three. And he covers them with the animal skins. So you have God making the first sacrifice and using that sacrifice to cover sin. What's the second story of the Bible? Well, Cain and Abel in the story of sacrifice. And it's hard for us to, I don't know, it's, 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 I think it's hard for us without understanding sacrifice. One, it's gonna be hard for us as 21st century Westerners, you know, who get our food at Trader Joe's to understand what happens to an animal and to understand the reality that both biologically and biblically, something must die for you to live. And so what would happen is, you know, because it's, it's, is it hard for you to take your sin serious? I think for most people it is. It's like, I don't know, say you did something terrible. I don't know, you drank too much and someone wasn't home and you stayed up late and who knows what you did. And you wake up the next day and you feel kind of like, what did I do? And but you, you, what you want to immediately do is get over it. You immediately want to avoid it. You immediately want to entertain yourself. You immediately want to go hang out with someone. You immediately want to go buy something. You just want to forget about it. What's well, like the, the uh, sacrifice was to show you how serious your sin was. And so let me just tell you what would happen. There were five things that would happen during a sacrifice, and I want you to understand these. <clears throat> the first is, it says, it would always say, if you read the, the Old Testament, the sacrificial language, it would say, draw near and pick your sacrifice. So here's what this meant. For the average family, don't think these people are not rich. In fact, it's hard for us to understand how poor people are. It's like, this isn't someone who's got a farm and has like, you know, 700 sheep and grabs a sheep for the sacrifice. Think more poor family, they have three animals. And they go, well, we're gonna sacrifice to the Lord. I guess he'll be the goat. It's like, well, the goat's lived with us for three years. And our daughter loves the goat. 
the daughter nicknamed the goat. It's like, well, it's the goat. The goat's okay. So we're going to get the goat. It's like, okay, well, that's emotional. We're grabbing somebody that we know, something that we know. Second thing that you would do is then you, sometimes your family, you'd put your hands on the goat and you would pray, you would confess your sins over that goat. Often the father would confess. You see this in the book of Job. He would confess his sins and the sins of his family. Could you imagine? I'm sorry. We just have loved money way too much. We've been so materialistic. I don't know. I'm sorry. We've been fighting with each other. Like we've just, we've been so selfish and inward focused and we've been bitter and resentful and you just confess that over this animal. It's like, I'm, this animal is going to receive symbolically my sins. And then you would go to the temple, but it was a requirement that the worshiper kills the animal. You know, the priest doesn't do that for you. You do that. The priest will see in a minute he helps you with the blood, but you had to kill your the own sacrifice. So, I mean, imagine this: what that does to you psychologically and spiritually to say, I had to kill something because of what I've done. And then the priest gets involved and they take the blood and they put it on the altar. And, you know, the blood represented the life of the animal and it represented this animal has, it represented substitution, which is the main teaching of the gospel. Jesus in my place for my sins. The animals were foreshadowing that. This animal in my place for my sin. And then they would take part of the animal and they'd put it on the altar and they'd burn it. And that was symbolically saying it would, as they would burn, at the end of it, it's like, it's gone. It's like, I give it up to the Lord. That's what it was saying. And so it's hard for us to understand the seriousness or the gravity of worship. The closest thing that we have today is the Lord's Supper in our services or communion. We don't do it each week. And you guys don't know when we're doing it, but I always know when we're doing it. And I'm always a little nervous because I know what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper, not to eat it in an unworthy manner. And, you know, when it's Lord's Supper, you know, it's like if you're sitting there, it's like if you're playing with some sin, now would be the time to repent. And if you've got something against somebody, now would be the time to text them and tell them you need to call them after service. And if you're struggling with your wife, now would be the time to grab her hand and say you're sorry. It's like this is serious. And we come up front and we remember what, what Christ did for us. So there's a seriousness to worship. But then there's a great joy. I want you to see this. It's both. Look at verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. So you have sacrifice and celebration. You have gravity and gladness. <clears throat> and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Basically, that was just a normal garment. Basically, David's saying, when I worship, I'm just like you. You know, and we'll see that, by the way. We'll see people, every once in a while, someone will come here and a new person will come and they'll go, my boss's boss is here in this church. Like you'll just, you'll be aware of some of the other hierarchies that you're a part of. You're like, well, this person is the head of such and such at the hospital, or this person is the head of such and such over there, and I'm brand new, and they're my boss's boss's boss. It's like, well, don't even worry about that. Because when we're, we're all coming together, it's like, we're not worried about any of that. We're, we're here today because it's like, we're all created by God. We're all equal before God. We're all saved by the same grace and the same cross. The, the, the ground is level at the cross of Christ. That's what David is communicating. I am a king, and forget I'm a king, but when I'm, when I'm before God, I'm just like you. That's what he's communicating. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. I wanna talk just for a minute about just joyful expression and emotion in worship, right? 
which I would say many of us probably need to grow in, right? If I were to go watch you watch your favorite sports team, you would probably be a lot more emotional than you are worshiping the living God of the universe. And what happens here is, so we would never do this, but imagine that we just, we brought out the cameras and we filmed everybody during the four worship services. And then we gathered the staff together afterwards and we said, okay, guys, let's, let's watch kind of the, the game film. Okay, put it on. Okay. And we could say, guys, all right, first we're gonna do this. We're gonna pick out the Lutherans, the former Lutherans, the former Catholics, the former Presbyterians and the former Episcopalians. It's like, how will we know? Well, they'll look bored. Their arms will be crossed like this, most likely. And uh, if they get real excited, they'll put their hands in their pockets and they'll start, start flapping their arms. <laughs> That's how we know we found the Episcopalians and we found the Catholics and we found the... Remember, we take God's word seriously, not ourselves seriously, okay? And then we'd say, well, how do we, how do we know who are the Baptists and who are the non-denominational folks and who are the excited Methodists? I said, well... They're all different, you gotta look for them, okay? I says, usually, I said, it depends on how, how much experience they have with this. I said, one of, they may do one hand in the pocket, one hand in the air, okay? I said, others of them, if they get real passionate, they may do heartburn back to one hand in the air, okay? <laughs> so, some people get excited, they'll put both hands up, right? And, and we know our charismatics because they do Simba. They do the Simba. <laughs> and we, 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 love, we love all of you. And, <clears throat> Here's why this is important. You know, I joke about it, but this is why this is important. Is it does, what we do with our body does communicate something to our soul. I don't quite know how it works. But here's what I do know. Like, for example, the Bible says raise your hands. Now, why would you raise your hands? There's a couple reasons. There's at least three. You might raise your hands one way just to say that it's celebratory, right? Like if somebody scored a game-winning goal, you might involuntarily almost watch yourself do it. Like, yes! Like, so there's part of it's like, yeah, Lord, what we just sang, that truth, I just, yes, that's what you're saying. But also, you might put your hands up in the air because you might say, I surrender. And you'll see that's another reason people put, just so you know, people could do the same thing for different reasons. Some people put their hands in the air and they just say, Lord, I surrender. This is, I, my life's really hard right now. I'm really struggling with something or I'm surrendering to this truth. I had one person tell me they lift their hands up because it's like, pick me up. It's like what like a little kid does. If, you, if your kid's under five years old, they'll do it all the time. They'll just walk up to you and just go. <laughs> it's, like, it's the international sign for, all right, you know, here we go. Um, but there's something about that. Like I was, when I was in college ministry, there was a college, because you know, there's lots of commands, kneel and clap and shout and, but I was, I was, I was uh, we were finishing up the summer. We were about to head back to the college campus, about 40 of us, let's say. And we were gonna go, um, there's a lot of non-Christians that are on our campuses. We were all at these schools and they were like, hey, let's pray. We did this every year. Hey, let's pray for our dorms and let's pray for our roommates and let's pray for our classmates and let's pray for the incoming freshman class. And we did that every year. But, they, but what they did different is they said, hey guys, the one, one leader said, hey guys, if you don't mind, if it's not too awkward for you, before we pray, would it be okay if we all got on our knees? You know, and there's like the, it's, a hard, it's like we're in an elementary school classroom. Like the floor's hard and like the lights are all bright and around here and everybody's getting off their chair and getting on their knees. And it just, it changes the way the whole room felt. It's just like, okay, now I'm really, I thought I was praying for my roommate. Now I'm really praying for my roommate. I thought I was praying for my mom. Now I'm really praying for my mom and something that I did with my body, I don't even know how it works. It communicated something to my soul. And so that's what we're seeing here. Now look, David, I mean, look at David. Look, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord, 
came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul. And by the way, even though she's the wife of David, she will only be called the daughter of Saul because she's acting more like Saul than David. Looked out the window and saw King David. Now, it's interesting. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, said she looks out the window of superiority down on David to judge him. Look what it says. She looked out of the window and saw King David leaping. Man, when was the last time you leapt? (laughs) I'm not sure if I have ever leapt. King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. That'll be a key phrase, before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. That's the religious spirit. That's the, it's very easy to despise things that we don't understand, right? Because they're scary and they're intimidating and they, they call out questions in our own heart so it would just be easier to judge them. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent and David had, that David had pitched for it. <clears throat> and David offered, here's more sacrifice, burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So you see sacrifice and celebration again and again, gravity and gladness. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of the hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his house. The the raisins represented being fruitful and having children. So basically he's like, listen, we brought worship back to the center of this city and of this nation. Let's have a lot of babies. (laughs) That's what he's saying, which is interesting because when you're spiritually, when you're worshiping the Lord, you're going to be spiritually healthy. And when you're spiritually healthy, you're going to multiply. That's the picture we see here. But look here, it says this. And David returned to bless his household. I love this. He's not just someone publicly that he's not also privately. He's leading in worship in church and he's leading in worship at home. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. She's obviously being sarcastic. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. That'd be like the lowest of the low status-wise. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. That's the key phrase. Who chose me above your father and above his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. That that kind of shows us the end of the line of Saul. What's interesting is everybody in this story is worshiping except David's wife. She comes and she has the religious spirit, right? And I love what, I've quoted this a couple times, but C.S. Lewis in his great book, Screwtape Letters, it's an uncle demon writing, it's fictional, but an uncle demon writing to a nephew demon on how to tempt Christians or people. And... One story, the guy says, guys, the nephew tells the uncle, I got this guy and he keeps going to church. And his uncle writes back, I know what to do. I know how to, I know how to deal with church going people. He says, here's what you need to do. Make him a connoisseur of churches. Make him a taster of churches. At every church he goes to, make sure he's a spectator and never a participant. That's the religious spirit. Michael sees God as useful. That's what religious people do. God is useful. God is the way my family will go straight. God is the way my marriage will stay healthy. God is the way my finances will be okay. God is the way that he'll help me get out of my addictions. God is useful. The Christian sees God as beautiful and God is lovely and God to be worshiped. And David basically says again and again, I'm worshiping the Lord because of what he's done for me. And he mentions some things. 
And when we think about worshiping the Lord, we worship the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because when you read the story of Uzzah touching the ark and you see, man, Uzzah's probably a good guy. I mean, Uzzah's probably in heaven. He's a believer. He just made a mistake. Well, not just a mistake, he sinned. He did something. He came in unholiness and sinfulness, came in contact with holiness and could not stand in his presence. How much more are we not gonna be able to stand in the presence of the living God? When, when I think about all of our futures, because God's a part of all of our futures, one day all of us are going to stand alone and naked before the living God at the end of our lives. And you go, well, how do you get ready for that? It reminds me of Chernobyl. You ever, you ever heard of Chernobyl? It happened in the Soviet Union in 1986. There's an HBO show about it. <clears throat> it's a really interesting story, and I'm not a historian, but basically what happens at Chernobyl is a nuclear reactor I don't know if the right, what the right word is. It breaks or it implodes or it explodes, but it's horrible. And in a really powerful scene, they send in this head scientist and he's with this head politician of the day and the two of them go over to this area and there's a group of guys going to go in the building to deal with the nuclear reactor. And it's an overwhelming scene because they put one kind of layer of clothing on, you're watching them and they're terrified. How would you like that job? Your job is to go and stand and try to figure out the nuclear reactor. And they go, okay, well, let's put this layer on. And the scientist goes, that's not going to be enough. And then they put another layer on. Because that's not going to be enough either. They put a third layer on. They, you know, they can barely walk. And they're heading into this building. And the politician says to the scientist, they're going to be okay, right? And the scientist says, they're not going to be okay. He said, I put all that on them. I gave them five years of life. He said, there is, it's impossible to stand in front of a nuclear reactor and be okay. You think, well, then what do we need to do to stand in front of the living God? This is why Paul's favorite phrase is, I am in Christ. In fact, I'm not just in Christ. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am hidden somehow. I'm hidden with God in Christ. So my great hope is when I die, it's not that I say, man, I was a good person, and I tried. I say the only way I can stand before the living God and have a relationship with him is because of what Christ has done for me. For others of you, I just want to talk for just a moment, because some of you may, this is very common, people find themselves in addictions all the time. Do you know that the Latin word for addiction, if you're in an addiction, the Latin word for addiction, that we get the word addiction from, is the word meaning religious devotion. Addiction, how do you get into addiction? You worship your way into an addiction. Recently, I was talking to a wife of an alcoholic. It's just hard because, you know, people who, are, who have family members who are alcoholics, what, they, they, what their family members do don't, does not make sense. It's like, well, why would he drink in the morning? Well, why, why doesn't he care about his health? Well, why doesn't he care about his job? I don't get it. It's like, well, we need different language. The language of addiction isn't where... Here's the language, he's worshiping alcohol. And we know that because he's of what he's willing to sacrifice. The good news, if you find yourself in some type of addiction, and there's many types of addictions, you worshiped your way into sin, and here's the good news, you worship your way out. <laughs> That's our answer. Our answer is not try harder and do better and you know, get stronger. It's actually, I need a bigger vision of Jesus. I need to be more overwhelmed with who he is and what he's done for me. And when Jesus Christ is what I worship, when he's the sun and the solar system of my life, all of the other planets in my life go in place. The hope in our church is to be a church that worships according to the word with passion and truth, with gravity and gladness. Let's pray. Lord, 
this is a weighty message. It's a weighty text, and we just ask to be a, a, a weighty people, or we ask to be a people who are serious and also unbelievably celebratory, who are unbelievably joyful, Lord, who are full of gladness and also gravity, Lord, who are full of passion and truth, Lord, who we're confusing to the world because of both how passionate we are and how committed we are to the truth, Lord. But I pray that our worship, whether it's personal or with our families or here together, that our worship would be a witness to the world, Lord, that you have done something in us, Lord. We pray that you would change the, the Michaels that we have in our life, the people who look on us. Maybe it's our coworkers, maybe it's our classmates, maybe it's our friends, maybe for some of us it's our spouse or for those of us it's our kids. And they look out the window of their life and they think what we're doing is foolish. So we ask that they would come to know you and come to love you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.